but I think it makes um, some procedures like castration and branding and dehorning in the dairy industry uh, a little bit more palatable to the consumer when we can talk to them about using pain control. Um, so I certainly think that's something that's important. I think also just thinking about um, how we can improve animal health also improves animal welfare. And lots of that goes back to just better management practices. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show. I am one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds in the beef industry right in your pocket. Today, we have Dr. Miriam Martin with us. Dr. Martin is Director of Animal Health and Welfare at the North American Meat Institute, where she provides expertise on a variety of topics, including emerging issues in animal health, animal welfare, and handling. Prior to working at NAMI, she visited feed yards weekly doing animal welfare auditing. She grew up on a diversified livestock operation, and her family is a part owner of a small meat harvest facility. Dr. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brandy. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's exciting to have you. It's been quite a bit since you and I um, talked, so it's nice to be able to catch up with you a little bit. Yeah, we run into each other at different events and in different walks of life, which is what is neat about agriculture. You get to touch people uh, in different ways over time and run into them again. So nice to chat with you. Yeah, it really is amazing how small the beef industry is when you think about it. So um, it's always great to run into um, fellow wildcats, and we will claim you as wildcat. <laughs> we got you for a few years, so we'll take it. Um, but just for those of us who, and those who are listening who may not know you very well, could you give us just a little bit of background about how you got into your current role? Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in northern Missouri on a cow-calf operation and got my bachelor's at the University of Missouri and was involved in meats and livestock judging. And that kind of, I think, made my world a little bit bigger and helped me understand some different segments of animal agriculture I uh, got my master's at Colorado State with Dr. Grandin in Livestock Behavior and Welfare. Um, started spending more time um, with the packer segment and working in animal welfare in that space during that time. And then got my PhD at K-State from the vet school in physiology and did a lot of cattle pain management research while I was there. Um, so got to kind of investigate my two passions in life, which is animal welfare and, and animal health and how those two intersect. Um, and then after that, uh, got a job with Progressive Beef and got to stay in Kansas, um, which is one of my favorite states and lots of good cattle folks there, um, and visit feed yards. Um, so learned a lot about that sector of the industry, um, which was not something that I, I had a lot of exposure to growing up in production agriculture, just on a cow-calf operation. And then started working for the North American Meat Institute about six months ago as their director of animal health and welfare. So get to work across different protein sources as well as with animal health and, and welfare and different emerging issues um, and get to work with 
producers and feed yards and packers. Um, so enjoy getting to have all of those different touch points within the industry. Uh, we joke that at the Meat Institute, I'm, uh, I, I deal with animals while they're still alive and, and everyone else, the meat scientists, uh, it's their problem once they're dead. Um, so <laughs> I, I like getting to be that person who still gets to work with producers just because that's the, the industry I grew up in. So I have a really fun job where I get to work remotely. I live in the Texas Panhandle but spent some time in D.C. Uh, being a scientist who works in public policy, um, which is fun to get to teach those individuals about how I grew up in the different segments of agriculture, for sure, um, and work with them. And at the end of the day, protecting and defending agriculture is what I kind of see as my role as someone who grew up as, as a farm and ranch kid um, and still gets to work in the industry is certainly something I see as a responsibility and a privilege that I really enjoy. That's uh, quite the path and the journey that you've been on. You mentioned that um, in your current role or in your career that like you get to combine your two passions. Have you always been passionate about passionate about animal welfare? Um, or is that something that you kind of developed once you got into college? Yeah, that's a great question. I did not know growing up, even during my bachelor's, that animal welfare was even a career path that I could take. Um, did not have a specific interest within animal agriculture during my bachelor's, um, and then had an internship with Merck Animal Health and was kind of presented with the need that um, we didn't have a lot of folks that were working in the animal welfare space, particularly that had a production agriculture background um, and kind of had an understanding of what was practical and how the industry worked. And so felt like that was a place um, that, that I could meet a need and also turned out to be something that I'm really passionate about. So growing up, taking care of animals um, is something that I, I still get to enjoy and share with people today. Um, so I really enjoy my career and then didn't start doing a lot with animal health um, until embarking on my PhD um, and then started to do more in that space um, and do now with foreign animal disease preparedness in my current role is a lot of what I do. Um, so definitely some overlap between animal health and animal welfare and what I work on with issues today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and a healthy animal has a better quality of life. Um, and what you were speaking about, about not knowing that there was many opportunities or positions in that animal welfare and well-being. Um, I remember I have, uh, I actually have a master's in animal welfare and well-being that I got at K-State, go Wildcats. Um, and I remember when I was going through that program and I was trying to decide if I wanted to finish, be done after my master's or get a PhD, there was really a limited number of ways to go in that particular area. And ultimately, you know, I, as I chose not to get a PhD in that, and that's always been a kind of a regret of mine because I'm still very passionate about it. But I do think, and it, it's, a, it's nice to hear you say that as well, or it sounds like that's an affirming statement is that those positions and opportunities and just spaces to work on animal welfare have really expanded in the past like decade. Cause yeah, that's when I was working on my master's is like, you know, 13, 12, 13 years ago. Yeah, they absolutely have. And I think a lot of it more recently has been looking at consumer trends and consumers saying they care about animal welfare. And then we, we have 
customers as well as suppliers and production companies that realized we probably need to have someone on staff who has some animal welfare training if, if that's the type of questions consumers are asking. So it's been neat to see that evolve over time. I agree. Absolutely. And that's great to hear that that segment of the industry is is aware that your perspective and an expertise are necessary to help us have um, good relationships and meaningful impact with grocery shoppers. I mean, you mentioned consumers. Do you hear much from like that grocery shop, shopper side or the, you know, the general consumer? Do you hear much from them or get much feedback? And if so, like, you know, what are you hearing that you can share with us? Yeah, that's what's kind of unique about the segment of the industry that I work in is we kind of see ourselves as the connecting piece that uh, a lot of our Packer member companies do get a lot of questions uh, from consumers um, that that then they come to us and ask what producers are doing um, because lots of the questions are geared towards production practices and what's going on on farms and ranches and in feed yards. Um, But most of those questions, um, consumers don't necessarily know who to ask. And so oftentimes they do come from us. And so we like being that connecting piece, um, but that means that we have to work a lot with other stakeholder groups. So we work with NCBA and National Pork Board a lot just to make sure that we are answering those questions like we should. Um, We get a lot of questions about what different label claims mean, um, whether it be antibiotic free or humanely raised, things like that. Um, and, and we also just get a lot of antibiotic use questions, whether it be use in cattle or antimicrobial resistance, um, what we're doing to, to limit use. And lots of times there's, there's not much of an understanding of the science or the reasons behind why we use antimicrobials in the way that we do. Um, so certainly an opportunity to educate. Um, but it is interesting that lots of consumers do just type into the chat box on websites of where they buy their meat, all kinds of questions. And you hope that they can, can get to the right technical expert who can actually answer them well. Um, but they certainly do have a lot of questions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we put a lot of work in. I mean, from my side of it, you know, I've been doing advocacy things for, like, I don't know, 13 years or something like that. And I mean, it's in the industry like NCBA and the Beef Checkoff and the Pork Board, you know, all these organizations and NGOs have been working to help provide further education and information for shoppers that are just typing into the Google box. And it's it's it almost seems like a never ending battle. And so that's one role that you're in is like that consumer side. Um, But you also work with policymakers. So how is that different? Like you're working with policymakers, advising them, like how exactly are you working with them or advising them? And then I guess, obviously, how is that different than what you were in, you know, when you worked for Progressive Beef? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I was in D.C. a couple of weeks ago, and we never know uh, what burning questions they're going to have that they've been waiting to ask us. Um, I, I actually was faced with a question today um, that a politician was raising that I think they had heard a lot from their constituents um, about label claims. And so sometimes it is just magnifying what's in the news It is what they are, are also going to ask questions about that they may not be very knowledgeable about either. Um, and then it, it really depends on who we're working with on the, if it's, if it's the more legislative side of things that they may not be, um, as knowledgeable about animal agriculture and have a lot of more basic questions, 
or if it's working with agencies on the regulatory and administrative side, like APHIS and FSIS, obviously they're going to have a really different perspective. And so that's who we work. I work more closely with in DC would be um, more of the the agency side of folks. Um, And so usually they have worked in the industry and have a good understanding of what they're talking about. Um, that being said, lots of times they don't have the boots on the ground um, that, that our members do at the Bead Institute. And so lots of times I'm not even necessarily speaking from my own experience. I am taking the questions they're asking back to members and back to producers and asking for their input and just kind of being the go-between sometimes. Um, but that's always really important to us is that we are being accurate representatives of what's actually going on in the industry. And I, I think that's important, an important role for those who are in D.C. to play um, that do have those interactions uh, with government agencies, um, as well as on the legislative side of things, that we make sure that they have an accurate picture of what's actually going on uh, west of them, whether it be in the Midwest or the West, um, where a lot of agriculture takes place, um, helping them just understand what happens day to day and what producers are facing is something that I don't think they get as much exposure to as we would like them. Um, so whatever we can do in that space to help them understand uh, the, the issues that they face, uh, I think benefits everyone. That's interesting. You were, you know, earlier you were talking about how like there's a a, a grasp of like basic procedures. Um, so AI and other things like that. And that sparked the thought I had, I saw a recent post. I don't know if you follow her on Instagram. Her name is Marky Hageman and her Instagram handle is girls eat beef too. And yeah, she's really cool and has really kind of done some trailblazing for women in, in the beef industry, but also just like the beginning rancher. And it's, she's had a cool journey that it's been interesting to watch, but she posted something, I don't know, a few days ago that was, she had this realization that people like shoppers don't necessarily have issues with things like artificial insemination generally because it's a normal procedure that happens across multiple species. Like it's not painful. It's not harmful, things like that. And what she has dug down into is that they simply don't approve because it's for the purpose of consumption. So it's not that people disagree with like the beef raising processes they just disagree with eating meat in general and they're validating their feelings for it or they have it, they don't realize that they have the problem with eating meat and they are just like disassociating from that part. So they're just finding something else to latch onto all that to say, have you ever been approached about your animal well-being or welfare background? And also the fact that I'm assuming that you eat meat, um, which I feel like is a very safe assumption. Um, have you ever been approached about that or spoken about that? Or, I mean, has that ever come up with for in your situation or in your, um, I guess, in your career, your day-to-day life? Yeah, yeah. I think it does a little bit less when I tell people that I work at the Meat Institute. I think they start to understand that a little bit more. Uh, but I was at, uh, I was at the Kansas City Airport, I don't know, it's been a couple months ago now, and I was on a shuttle um, going to my vehicle, and the, the gentleman who was driving asked, what I did for a living and was, I was the only person on there and we had a ways to go. So he had all kinds of questions. Um, but I don't think I immediately told him that I worked at the meat Institute. Um, and so one of his first questions was, Oh, you work in animal welfare. Does that mean that you don't eat meat? And that's oh, really not <laughs> a question that I get very often. 
Um, but I was like, oh, wow. I mean, that's, I, I understand where you're coming from and asking that. So got to explain like, absolutely. Um, and explain to him that I grew up in agriculture. And then he was like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense that you, you know, then understand it and think that it's important. Um, but I don't, I don't get the question about if I eat meat very often, but every once in a while I, I do. I mean, it's probably a safe assumption. Like you grew up on a, like a beef cattle production background and you work for the North American Meat Institute. Like, I feel like when I say you were a meat eater, there was like a hundred or a 99.99% chance. Like you're going to say, yes, you're a meat eater. So, um, you're gonna have some really uncomfortable conversations with your colleagues if you don't eat meat and that's where you work. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I always, whenever, whenever I get on a plane, I have boots on. I really don't want to be asked. Like, I just want to get on the plane because I'm usually coming from a meeting or something and I just want to get on the plane and go to sleep. Um, so good for you for answering the guy's questions. Yeah, um, it is funny. There definitely are people that ask questions on airplanes too and realize you're a captive audience and you're like, well, I guess this is my chance to, to uh, be an advocate. Um, but it is, you get the whole gamut of questions. I sat by someone on an airplane a few months ago um, that had been in the restaurant business all his life and was super interested in the production and supply side of things. Um, so it's always interesting when you run into individuals like that. I remember one time I was on a plane sitting by a guy who worked in IT for Chipotle um, and he had a lot of questions about who was supplying meat to them and did not understand a lot of things about their platform at all, which was very amusing. Um, but you never know who you're going to run into and what questions they're going to ask. That was probably a good conversation for you to have, honestly, that one. With yes, I would agree. I think he learned a lot about his company and what they stood yeah. for um, after he got off the off of that flight. <laughs> That's good. He probably needed that wake-up call. Um, I can remember one time I was on a plane, and I like I just said, I'm – the lull of the plane, I can, if I like just sit down and I put my head against the, the like wall or whatever, I can generally be asleep before we take off. But I, that did not happen. And this guy saw my boots and he started asking me and his immediate, he heard that I was like a, you know, I have cows and stuff. And he was like, Oh, I don't, you know, I don't give my girls, I have three dollars. I don't feed them beef. And I immediately like, man, I, there went my nap. Um, so yeah, I stayed awake for that one. And I, th I think I left a positive impact on him. Um, I don't know that he went home and like his daughter started eating beef like three times a day. I don't think he started doing that, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't afraid. He stopped being afraid to just feed them beef period. So, I mean, there's, there's good things that come from those, those speeches, obviously, or, you know, those conversations that you have out quote unquote, like out in the wild. Um, Speaking of like animal handling, being out, being out in the wild, um, you know, you, you worked with the great Temple Grandin. Um, that's another thing we have in common, which is very cool. Um, who obviously is a pioneer in animal handling and fight or flight zone and all of these things that we have just, they've just kind of become our, uh, second nature in the beef industry. Um, so thankfully she, you know, pioneered those things what are three things that a producer can implement to improve the welfare of their herd? So like, if you are going to go, you know, if, if you just had to be asked by a general commercial producer, like, why should I care about um, animal handling or stockmanship? Like, what are those three things that they could do to improve the welfare of their herd? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I got my PhD doing pain control work. And so obviously that's an area that I, I think we can improve upon. And a lot of that is going to be dependent upon getting more animal health products that, that are approved for pain control and food animals in the U.S. And that is something that we are evolving in our behind some countries globally in the products that are available to producers. So that puts veterinarians in a position where they, they have to use extra label use if, if they're going to implement a lot of pain control protocols. Um, and so I, I do think that accessibility is an issue. And so that's something that over time, um, I, I hope is something that we as an industry evolve to using more of. Um, and I think it just allows us to tell a story of improvement, which I think is important. Um, but I think it makes um, some procedures like castration and branding and dehorning in the dairy industry a, a little bit more palatable to the consumer when we can talk to them about using pain control. Um, so I certainly think that's something that's important. Um, I think also just thinking about um, how we can improve animal health also improves animal welfare. And lots of that goes back to just better management practices. And so thinking about stressful points in an animal's life and how we can reduce that stress. Um, there's a, a lot of veterinarians who do a good job uh, of explaining how we, we can better acclimate our animals to going through the chute and being processed and being weaned and being separated from their mothers and things like that, that I think we, we are starting to have some of the science out there that points to some things that we could be doing in those areas. Um, and so I think that that goes back to some of the little things that we can do that aren't necessarily capital investments where you don't have to have the nicest facility, um, but really lead to not only less stress on your animals, but they're also more likely to be healthy after you wean them and your vaccines are more likely to be effective. And it kind of all starts to, to add up, I think. And so that's something certainly that producers can do. And then I just think about further education, um, getting out and learning some things about handling um, and stockmanship and stewardship, I think, has done a great job of getting out to a lot of producers, um, but just taking advantage of some of those opportunities to get away from the ranch for a few days and go learn a few things. I know I have learned a lot working on different operations that were not um, just my own growing up, and so just learning how other people do things, I think, can be super valuable that we spend a lot of time on our own operations and know how we do things and think that we've got it figured out. Um, and sometimes when we spend times in different parts of the U.S., um, I know growing up in Missouri, we have a, a lot of grass and a lot of rain, which is very forgiving. Um, and there are producers in other parts of the country that do some practices a lot better than us because they don't have those luxuries. And so sometimes I think there's a lot to be learned from each other if we just are willing to take a little time to get off the ranch and learn some of those things. That is such a valuable point. And it's something that I think every generation of beef producer struggles with is like, we kind of get barn blind. We tend to not be able to focus much attention on anything past our own ranch gate um, because there's so many things that are, you know, based the things that are, you know, that equate to feeding the cows, the stuff that's got to get done every day. It's hard to devote time to getting out and learning more and, and seeing other what other people do. But there's so much experience and knowledge to be gained 
from visiting other people. And those are three really good, um, I would say intangibles that you just listed there that can really have a big impact. Um, going back to the pain management, you mentioned that we need more pain control. Um, I don't know the right word to use, but we need more methods of pain control and we need to be improving in that area. So that's one area we need to improve. But do you think the livestock industry, specifically beef production, has improved in terms of animal welfare over the last five to 10 years? And if so, like how? Yeah, I think so. I think one way that we're improving is in the genetic space. Um, and we've seen so many improvements in that space and it's certainly not something that, that I am an expert in. But I think breeding animals for disease resistance is going to be something that we see more of um, that's that's going to improve animal health and welfare in the future. And I think is something that we have to do a good job of telling the story of that um, to consumers and helping the public understand why um, using those genetics are, are important to do that. But I do think that that field has come a really long ways um, and we're going to do, be able to do a lot of really neat things in the animal health and welfare space from a genetics perspective in the future. And I, I think we are going to be able to come a long ways. That is really interesting. I had not heard that to be breeding for um, disease resistance. That That is really interesting. Like what, um, what diseases do you think are going to be the first ones to be subject to that or is there already that happening? I, I'm just really intrigued by that. Yeah. So I think part of what sparked it is uh, there was some research done at West Texas A&M WT here where I live in Canyon, where they were looking at some yield grade one prime animals and looking at cloning them and trying to figure out what made those animals so exceptional and realized that those cattle never had a bad day at the feed yard. They were never sick. And that's what allowed them um, to, to be that, that upper crust that is so unattainable. And so I think that's kind of what got the ball rolling of making the industry think about um, finding those cattle that don't have a bad day at the yard. Um, and there was something to that. And so obviously BRD is something that we, we deal with a lot and people – like to say was something that was not an issue long ago that is becoming more of an issue. And, and I think in order to combat that in the future, um, finding those animals um, that are more resilient, that, that do not have BRD at the yard is going to be something we're going to be able to genetically select for would be my hope moving forward. That's, I mean, that's, that's very important. Um, that just the way you coined that though, like those, animals never had a bad day at the yard. That's a, uh, I mean, that's really valuable. And that really puts it into, you know, we talk about disease and the sick pen and the cost of like sickness and you just, all those things add up. But when you phrase it like that, those cattle never had a bad day. That I feel like to me, that boils it down into something that's really bite-sized, easy for someone to comprehend. Right. And I think it's going to be super important from an antimicrobial use standpoint moving forward too that if we can genetically select for animals that we're not going to have to treat as much, that's certainly going to help us in that area as well. And we are, I think, clamoring for as many tools as we can find um, in that area right now from an antimicrobial use standpoint, just because there's a lot of pressure there. And from an animal welfare perspective, we just really have to push back hard and say that 
we trust veterinarians to do the right thing and it, it needs to be something we still have access to. So I think finding as many different creative ways that we can to to reduce antimicrobial use to be able to tell that story to the public is going to be super important moving forward. That's a really great point. I mean, you mentioned antimicrobial use and like doing that judiciously and how, you know, we need to be able to talk to the general public about that. And obviously we want to do the right thing for animals um, and for beef safety and the quality of beef and overall animal health. But obviously antimicrobials come with a tangible cost. Profitability is always going to be a higher priority in the beef industry. It's not necessarily like the very top thing, but it's near the top. Um, where do profitability and animal welfare intersect? I mean, can you speak a little bit about how they are related? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it goes into the bigger conversation that animal welfare is an aspect of sustainability and everyone likes to talk about sustainability. It's a hot topic right now. Um, and I think what we're realizing is we, we have, less of an environmental footprint with those animals that are healthy, um, that, that aren't in negative welfare situations that are highly efficient. And I think that's where they all intersect in how we can not tell the public, yeah, we're just worried about profitability and efficiency because that's obviously not the story we're trying to tell. But we can say, that these, from an environmental standpoint, are where we're trying to be um, and are leaving less of a carbon footprint. And so I think that's where we see production efficiencies come into how we can tell the story of those are something that's important to us is from that environmental impact standpoint. And I don't think we have leveraged that as much as we potentially can moving forward, um, because I think we're scared to talk about wanting to, to have a livelihood um, and be profitable. Um, but I think that's also makes us human when we talk about that um, from the standpoint of wanting to have a viable, sustainable business to leave for the next generation. And so I think it just comes into how you phrase it um, and how you talk about it. And I, I think it becomes something that we just need to think about how we intentionally state those things that we certainly still can talk about production efficiencies today. That's not something that I think we should feel bad about talking about or profitability and should certainly still be something that, that matters a lot to us um, because obviously it does from a, from a production standpoint and it's okay to talk about it. Absolutely. Um, that's something I, you said that people are scared of it. I don't know that people are no so necessarily scared to talk about it, but um it, it's not talked about enough. The fact that like, if, if your business isn't profitable, it is not sustainable. And it's okay. You know, something that drives me just absolutely nuts when I'm, you know, trying, you know, being an advocate online is when I, I see someone talking about like big farms and corporations and we don't have to go down that train, but um, like, it's okay for other companies to grow and be profitable. And that, that mindset is not allowable to agriculture. It's not as, it's not given to agricultural as easily. And that's so frustrating because like I said, profitability, I mean, the audience, you guys can't see my hands, but like they're interlinked, you know, your joint hands of sustainability and profitability. You cannot have sustainability without the other one. And so that's just a great point. We, we have got to talk about that, that, that if we're not 
making money, it's not a livelihood and we can't stay in business. And because that's what they are, they are, we are a, a ranch or farm is a small business. Um, so that, that's just a, a point that I appreciate that you have or a viewpoint and that you are sharing that in your channels. Cause I know that I'm sharing it with, you know, with consumers on my channels, but it's great that you're sharing that with policymakers and, you know, your stakeholders that you work with every day. So it's, just that message being shared in multiple places is important. Um, a bit of a, you not a U-turn, a hard right here in terms of our discussion, but you know, there's things that, that happen in all facets of the beef industry and livestock industry. Um, maybe some that we like that we don't like, but if you could make change, wave a magic wand and change any one thing about the beef industry, what would it be and why? Yeah, I, like listening to a lot of podcasts and uh, <laughs> one that I enjoy don't is, say that you would get rid of podcasts don't say that <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> one that I enjoy is the working cows podcast and talks a lot about um ranching for profit and regenerative agriculture and I think that's something that that a lot of the beef industry is scared to talk about and some of those words uh make us a little bit uncomfortable um and everyone has a different definition um, but I think a lot of the lessons I've learned um, through that podcast and a lot of those experts are things that are going to be key for the beef industry to be sustainable moving forward. And it's really understanding what it is to be a good grazer and to understand how beef interact with wildlife and, and how you can really give back to the land and, and understanding that you don't have to do the exact same thing your neighbor's doing, that what makes sense for your operation may be something that's completely different and bigger isn't always better. And learning about different enterprises and what fits you best and how you want to allot your time. Um, I, I think there's some lessons that we have just been uh, afraid to embrace because of some stigmas that we have in the beef industry. If you're supposed to work hard all the time and more cows is better and some things like that, that I think we put some undue pressure on ourselves that sometimes we have to figure out what makes the most sense for your operation to be sustainable long-term that may look completely different, um, that may not be near as many capital investments. Um, and so I think some of those lessons are things that I just hope that our industry embraces moving forward. Um, and I think that, that being able to be different is what's going to encourage the next generation to come back. And I think that that's something with land prices um, we're just struggling with right now is, is encouraging kids to come back and then feel like they have an opportunity to be profitable and be able to, to thrive in the beef industry and feel like they have a future. And we have to figure out how we can get them back to the ranch and make them feel confident that they can be successful. You know, those are really good points because we do need the generation we do need people to come back and keep the the history going and the heritage and also so that we have you know people producing food and you mentioned the word regenerative i know for me i feel like there are some words that have been almost hijacked quote unquote by like animal rights activists because there's a difference for those that are listening there's a big difference between animal rights and animal affair um that we don't have time to get into today but um i feel like sometimes sometimes when i see the word regenerative i can almost just get like a like a step back and be like whoa because 
some of the things that we like in the beef industry, like conservation, can get hijacked by animal rights activists, in my opinion. And then once they have taken ownership of it, we don't want to ascribe to what they think about it because they obviously don't have the science that we have, the the production background, et cetera. It's like, we don't want to do what they say is regenerative. Like we have our own definition of it because we've been living it and we're on the ranch and stuff like that. So it's interesting that you, you know, that you talked about that um, because I mean, that's important. So those are all really good thoughts. Um, and I don't have a magic wand for you. I'm sorry that I can't help you with that. But um, I have really, I've, I've heard good things about the ranching for profit. I have a friend, um, actually, my oldest daughter's godmother gave me a book about the, like, it's like farming without the bank. And there was some really interesting, it's, which is along the same lines as ranching for profit. And it's along the same lines as that. So that's interesting. It is time to our famous three. Okay, we have come to the rapid fire part of the podcast. So these are not necessarily beef production oriented questions, but they are rapid fire here. So what is your favorite beef related book or resource? Yeah, I have been reading Kick the Hay Habit and it's a good book. So I would I would recommend that. Okay, I can't have you say that title and you not give us like a little teaser of what it's about. <laughs> yeah, no. So it's just thinking about uh, creative ways uh, for your operation uh, to, to feed cattle the best way that it makes sense for you. And coming from a family and an operation um, that spends a lot of money on hay every year, that's probably something that we need to think about. So it hits up. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are big rotational grazing advocates in our house, on our place. And it's been tougher this year because it's, I think you said earlier in the podcast, when it's green and raining, like you can do that it covers up a lot of things I said, maybe is what you said. Um, it's, it's really easy to rotate pastures and let that grass grow back and grow the root systems when it's raining. But, um, we haven't been as fortunate this year. So I'm going to have to, uh, I'm writing that down actually, like right now to look that up. Um, what is a book that is not related to the beef industry that you are currently reading? Yeah, so I'm going to say a podcast instead of a book, if that's okay. So, uh, <laughs> hey, it's, you're, it's it's all about you tonight, so you go ahead. Generational downfall. Um, but I actually really like some of the Meat Eater podcasts that are associated with that show on Netflix. It's, it's more of the hunting community, but they actually have a lot of overlap um, with a lot of things that are important to the agriculture community. And I think from a policy perspective, moving forward, um, being friends with the hunters down the road is going to be really important for agriculture. Oh, I, yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I've heard about that Meat Eater podcast. I've heard like a few audio snippets of it on some other people's Instagram posts, but um, that sounds really good. And, and I'm totally into what you're saying about we're going to need to be buddies or, or closer buddies with yeah, the, they actually talk about a lot of agriculture policy issues on their podcast, which is very interesting to me. Well, I'm about to run out of episodes of Smart List to listen to while I'm running, so that's a good one. <laughs> I can add that to the list of things to listen to. Um, okay, and then the last rapid fire question here is: What th- I want you to think of someone that you look look up to, like a role model, and what is a trait that that person has that has allowed them to be successful? Yeah, I think what comes to mind is resilience. 
And I, I think that goes back to during COVID. I think we learned about a, a lot of the aspects of being a good leader and someone who's successful that can't be taken away from you um, in, in trying times in order to be resilient. And so your experiences and your education, there, there are certain things that are always going to be valuable and stick with you and allow you to be resilient in times that, that are unexpected and trying. And so that's certainly something that, that I admire. I mean, resiliency is one of the hallmarks of farmers and ranchers. Absolutely. I mean, there's people who are farming in the 80s who are still farming today. And if that isn't the definition of resiliency, I don't know what it is. I agree. Yeah. Well, that is, I have, I've got like a whole bunch of notes here that I've been taking while you've been talking about good points that you've made and resources you've shared. So um, I have really learned a lot. And uh, that's one of the great things about these podcasts and interviews is um, when we get outside our own ranch gate and we talk with other people, we will learn a lot. So thank you for sharing all that with me and, and with our audience um, tonight. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, Brandy. Oh, it's been awesome. I'm very excited for this to go live for our, for our audience to hear. So that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Dr. Martin for being on the show. Uh, Miriam, if people have more questions for you or they want to learn more or get some more information about animal welfare, um, where can they go or how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, that's a great question, Brandy. They are welcome to follow me on Facebook or Instagram. I'm Dr. Miriam Martin on Instagram. And my email is mmartin at meatinstitute.org if you'd like to shoot me an email. So it's been a pleasure chatting with you. She gave you guys her email address. She is serious about letting y'all talk to her. So, well, thank you again, Dr. Martin, for being on the show. We really appreciate it. And thank you to our audience for joining us. And we hope that you will join us again next week on the Beef Podcast Show.